The following audio is from Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that our only boast is in Jesus Christ, our Savior. May we now um, give our attention to the wonderful story of our, our King. And so, Lord, I pray now that the Spirit would move in our midst, bless the preaching of your word, and as we approach the communion table, may our hearts be full of gratitude for what's been done for us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew 27. We'll make reference to that this morning. We won't read the portion again. One of the most misunderstood figures of speech in the English language is irony. Sometimes we think of irony as well as just bad luck or a coincidence that's ironic. But the word literally means when something happens that is the opposite of what is expected. That's ironic. Something happened that you didn't expect. And maybe you don't understand irony, but most of us understand sarcasm. Yes? My family lives there. It is our language of love. And if you get it, you get it. And if you don't, you don't. But this is how we operate. But in my own heart, the sarcasm is to say one thing, and there's something behind it, right? Um, but in my own heart, I know already that this sarcasm of mine has gotten me into trouble. Amen. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, no, no, it has. And not too long ago, I, I had to apologize for my sarcasm. Um, someone once said, I'm actually not funny, I'm just mean, and people think I'm funny. That's sarcasm sometimes. Um, it can be hurtful, um, it can mask hatred. And it can, it can um, be a cowardly way of dealing with problems, just a sarcastic remark. But you know, there's something powerful in sarcasm when it's used properly. Um, it makes a point. And whether you realize it or not, the Bible uses much sarcasm. It does. You'll recall the story of Elijah as he went against the false prophets of Baal. And they have a showdown, and Elijah says, let the God who answers by fire be God. And so he says, by all means, you guys go first. And so they, they lay the altar down, they weep, they cry, they beg, they cut themselves for Baal, who did not exist, to answer. And here's how Elijah encourages them. It's called sarcasm. He says, shout louder. Maybe he's sleeping. Maybe he went on a journey. Maybe he's using the washroom. Literally. And the point is being made. You can say those things as if you really want him to wake up and respond, but all along you know he does not exist. Paul does this to the Corinthian church. He says, you are rich. You are wise. You are reigning like kings. And if you know the Corinthian church, that wasn't the case. And what he said was pointed. It, it made the points he wanted to make. Jesus himself uses sarcasm. He talks to the leaders of Israel who were lawyers with the law, the Bible, uh, the, the word of God, and he has a conversation and he says to them, have you never read your Bible? Knowing full well that they had. 
and had missed the point. And so we understand irony, most of us, through sarcasm. It's a technique that appears um, different than it actually is. And so when we look at Matthew 27 this morning, we're going to see ironic twists throughout this whole text. There are actually six of them that we'll point out this morning. But what appears on the surface to be the case differs radically from what is actually the case. And we'll talk about that this morning. And in between each of them, there's an application for you and I as well. And here's my prayer this morning, that we may hear and consider and make um, out what is meant in Scripture today, that our hearts would be stirred and our wills will be moved, and that we can see the glory and the power of Jesus Christ from this text. Consider first the chief priest. In our story, we begin with the chief priest, uh, and it's plural, meaning uh, Matthew speaking about the former chief priest, Annas, and the acting chief priest, Caiaphas, with the elders as well. And this is important to note, because what he's saying there is, there's a group of men uh, that make up the Sanhedrin, either 23 or 71, and what they were known for, they were the ancient courts of justice in Israel. And so we hear as we begin the chief priest, both of them, the elders, the Sanhedrin, and we should think right away, these are just men. They know the law. They long for the law. We would call them righteous and holy and men of integrity and character. They are keepers of the law. The court of justice for Israel. And yet, they seek one to betray the Messiah. The righteous men, all of them in this group, the ones who were responsible for justice are now seeking somebody to betray the Messiah, the one that they were waiting for, the one who would bring true justice. And they find someone. They find Judas. He does the deed. And then he's remorseful. Whatever his plan was, he knew that now it would not work. And he's remorseful. And he says, I have betrayed innocent blood. Verse number four. I know what I've done, innocent blood. And yet they are so bent, these righteous, just men are so bent on destroying Christ. Here's what they say to a man who's just come, who said, I blew it, I'm remorseful. They say, not our problem. Not our problem. But it was their problem. They created it. They could have done something about it. Instead, they say to a guilty man, you deal with it. But they're so concerned with the law and being just that they realize that they've got to keep the law and the money, the blood money, which was their money. They couldn't just keep it for themselves. And so they decide, let's be lawful. Let's not put it in the treasury. We, won't, we don't want to defile ourselves because we are righteous. We are just. While they were organizing an unlawful trial themselves. Do you understand the trial of Jesus Christ was unlawful on, on every level? I'm not talking about the Roman part. In the Jewish court of law that these men knew, they were having a trial during the night away from the temple. 
And it was a capital offense which took three days to come to a conclusion. And the most ironic twist is this, that Israel's just and righteous leaders, so-called, are doing everything in their power to kill Christ and a Gentile woman, Pilate's wife, does her best to secure Christ's release. It's ironic. It's a twist. We see the chief priests who look to be righteous. They are not righteous. The application for us today is this. What about our own ceremonialism? Honestly, we we read the New Testament sometimes and we hear chief priests and we hear elders and we hear Pharisee and we just clump them in as being hypocrites, right? But I'm telling you something. These are the people that were outstanding in their community. You would want your children to play with their kids. They were known to be holy, pious people. But what happens is when Christ comes on the scene, he messes up their life. They had it good. This is the way we want it done. We've always done it this way before. We know. And Jesus comes on the scene and wrecks them. And for many of us this morning, I don't doubt that we love Jesus. But we've got our ceremonies that we check all the boxes off. So we can leave this place and feel good about ourselves. And we never go any deeper than that because we don't want Jesus wrecking our lives. We like the status quo. We like to do what we're doing. And we never allow him to go a little deeper into our hearts for our pride, our filth, our lust, our greed, our envy, our materialism, our gossip, our bitterness, our anger, our unforgiveness. You cannot tame Jesus Christ. He will not be tamed. He's a lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so... We name the name of Christ this morning, and yet for many of us, we would rather stay with our ceremonies that make us feel better than allowing Christ to shake up our world as well. The chief priests were not righteous. Number two, the crowd. The crowd. And I'm not even talking about the crowd out there, because you see even the irony of this. The first part of the week, they're shouting, Hosanna! Son of David, save us. And I think this was a group from Galilee following him. But by the end of the week, the crowd is not saying Hosanna. They're saying crucify him. But I'm speaking of the crowd that should have been there. I'm speaking about the crowd that spent three years with him. That listened to him preach and teach. That heard him pray. That watched his manner of life that saw the miracles, that spent time with him. It's amazing, we read this chapter, and not one of them, other than Judas, is mentioned. Now, we know John was there. But of all the disciples, maybe the one who was loudest, who said, though all of these guys betray you, I will die for you, Simon Peter is nowhere to be found. This crowd that should have been strong and faithful and tenacious and last to the end, they're not found. Although, there is a Simon who is found. Simon of Cyrene. And it should strike you, it's not Simon, Peter. There's a purpose and a reason for that. He is the one who takes up the cross. And not only him. I always am amazed by this. I didn't read verse number 55 this morning. But here's what it says about the scene that we read about. And many women, many 
women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, were there looking on from afar. Love disciples, men, glaringly absent, the women are there. The ironic twist is the crowd that should have been strong is weak. It's really weak. The application for us this morning is we should look at our own commitment. This morning, if you're here as a believer in Christ, we identify with Jesus. It's what Christian means, a little Christ. We identify him with a public profession. We identify with him with baptism. We identify with him by living our lives out in his commands, by suffering. We identify with Jesus. He has called us to pick up our cross and follow him. And the fact of the matter is, many of us, like the disciples, have said or will say or think we might, if, if, if it really turns south, you can count on me. I will be the one that, Lord Jesus, you died for me. I am willing to die for you. But how many times we blush to speak his name? How often we'd never pray in a restaurant because we'd be embarrassed. How is it that we won't witness to our loved ones who are lost because we don't want them to think that we're crazy, but we'll die for him? Come on. We just need a reality check. One of our men I was working a couple weeks ago, and he came across a guy in the conversation. The guy doesn't come here, didn't know the guy. But they're talking about churches, and, and the guy said, well, what church do you go to? One of our guys. He said, well, I go to Maple City Baptist. And the guy said, oh, you go to that crazy church. Uh, I, I don't know what that means, uh, nor do I care what it means. But if I crazy you mean we have people who really love Jesus and want to serve him, I'm all about crazy. I'm all about crazy. But it's one thing to be crazy in the building here where we're safe. And to be bolsterous here where we're safe. But we should be the crowd that is not weak. What we say at worship service, we should be saying at work. The crowd was weak. We should look at our own commitment. Number three, the choice of a savior. Barabbas, notorious prisoner. He's a criminal. He was guilty. And, and the fact is, on that day, there were three crosses slated for death. There were three already. And many people think that Barabbas was the ringleader of the other two thieves. And so he is condemned to die. It's interesting. His name literally, Bar meaning son, and Abbas, father. Son of a father, Barabbas compared to Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father. And it's interesting, I don't know if there's any connection here, but there are some manuscripts that add Jesus Barabbas in that chapter, Jesus Barabbas, and Jesus, which is called Christ. Jesus was a very popular name in the first century. Yahweh saves. And when Pilate says, which Jesus do you want? He makes reference to the one that you call Christ. That's the difference. And so what Pilate is doing is he's offering the choice of a savior. There are two. Barabbas, the one with the sword. Violent, insurrectionist. He'll take a life, but you'll get it all now. We'll throw off the government. We'll rule and reign. This is our time. Or the other one, Christ, who doesn't take a life. He gives a life. 
He gives his own. He has perfect justice. And it's not for right now. It's for then. So who do you choose? And the crowd says, we want Barabbas. Can you imagine? The Roman governor just said, I can't find anything wrong with him. On the false trial, no one could agree. It was a farce. He was innocent. And yet they cry out for Barabbas. And so Pilate says, well, then what should I do with Jesus? And they could have said anything. Who cares? doesn't matter to us. We don't care what you do with him. Just give us Barabbas, our Savior. That's not what they say. They say, crucify him. For a Jew to order a Gentile Roman government to, to crucify another Jew is unthinkable. It's unthinkable. And yet they say, crucify him. Crucify him. In choice of the Savior, they made the wrong choice. What about our choices and our course of action this morning? What kind of Savior do you want? And by the way, this morning, whether you're religious or not, everyone has a Savior. Everyone. Yours might not be religious, but it's something in your life that brings you comfort, peace, security, rest, hope, identity. There is someone or something that we're all worshiping. You have a choice of a Savior. And if it's anything other than Christ, you made a wrong choice. A wrong choice. But for some of us who know him, we want a Jesus that serves us. We want a Jesus who makes all of my wildest dreams come true. We want a Jesus that I can control and I can manipulate and I can create my own reality and in my own image. Keller said something like this, if the God you serve never disagrees with anything that you do, it may be that you're worshiping an elevated vision of yourself. Uh, Jesus doesn't agree with everything we do. He is the Savior. And again, he will not be tamed. You can't put him in a box. They chose the wrong Savior. Christian, Jesus is not who you think he is. Jesus is who he said he is. Period. He's not here to serve you. He's here to save you. To save you. Fourth ironic twist. The cleansing of Pilate's hands. Pilate washes his hands. And he claims, I'm innocent. But he confirms he has, he has governed unjustly. He didn't have the strength, the power, the integrity to do what is right. He washes his hands and says, hey, my conscience is clean. I'm good. I'm cleared. The water has taken care of the problem. But we find out that the way of cleansing is not within ourselves. It's outside of ourselves. You, you can claim innocence this morning. You can claim that you're religious, you keep the law, you do the works, you're an outstanding citizen, you know, you pay your bills, you don't kick the dog, you're good, and you're clean. The problem is our corruption is not washed away by any water. None. Not on your hands, not on your head, not on your whole body. The only way to wash away our corruption is through the blood of Jesus Christ. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Pilate washes his hands, but he is not clean. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Not our own way. Our own way means nothing. It's through Christ and Christ alone. Number five, 
The next ironic twist, the contempt of the soldiers. As we read our text, it's interesting, he calls it a garrison or a cohort. A cohort in, in, in Roman military terms, 600 men. 600 military men. You need to see the picture here because here is a, is a short Jewish man. History tells us that Jewish men around this time were between 5'8 and 5'9. Here is Jesus Christ now standing at 5'8, 5'9, just scourged. His flesh hanging off his back. Blood everywhere. Surrounded now by 600 soldiers mocking him. Their contempt going to tell a Roman garrison, look at this is the king of the Jews. The nation that we just conquered, that we have subjugated, we rule, and you can see in their contempt, they just humiliate him as his claim to be king. Something interesting happens here, and we, we don't see it unless we're looking for it, but it's a chiasm, it's a, it's a technique where it goes like a, I'll say this, you won't understand it, but maybe you will, A, B, B, A, the way things are written, they're pointing to something in the middle. And you find it here. I want you to notice this about the contempt of the soldiers. Verse 28, they strip his clothes. Gone. Naked, ashamed, 600 men mocking him. Verse 29, a crown of thorns is crushed upon his brow. Okay? So they take his clothes off, crown of thorns on his head. Then, verse 30, you start the reverse. The reed smites his head. And then they put his clothes back on. There's a point to this. And the point is, we're telling you these things, and there's something in the middle that's really important. See, they're mocking that Christ could possibly be the king. And so they say, right smack in the middle of this chiasm, Hail, King of the Jews! And it was a mockery of him. And the writer wants you to see that's right in the middle because the idea of king is important. Really important. A matter of fact, you see Pilate who sits in judgment of Christ. He's a Roman governor. He's the power of the land. He's not even Caesar, but he sits in judgment while Christ stands there. Not knowing that the true judge of the entire universe is standing before him. He is the king. And it comes up over and over again. They had contempt for him as the king, but the reigning king is Jesus Christ. My brother and sister this morning, we must understand that the reigning king today is Jesus Christ. In his day, it was not Pilate. It was not Caesar. Caesar was not Lord, could never be Lord. And in our day, our saviors or our kings are not, it's not a prime minister. It's not a president. Not anyone you can name, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is Jesus Christ and Christ alone. And there's coming a day that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. He's King. They can mock, and the world can mock. He will never be mocked again. He is coming as King, and those who reject him will be crushed under his feet. We paint this picture of a Jesus who is effeminate 
and he's a hippie with sandals and long hair and throwing flowers everywhere. That's not the Christ of the Bible, and that's not the Christ who is coming back. He's coming back as a king, and he will rule and reign. And finally this morning, the most ironic twist in all of this is the cross. It's a cross. Why was he delivered? Barabbas was the criminal. Jesus was innocent. This is unjust. Barabbas was released. Jesus was scourged. This is inhumane. Barabbas lives and escapes the third cross. Jesus is crucified. The criminal goes free. The third cross wasn't for him that day. It was for Christ. The innocent one dies. And the irony of this is, the guilty who deserve to die goes free. That third cross was not for Jesus. It was for a rebel, for a criminal, for a sinner. My friend, the third cross was for you. It was for me. And Christ stepped in to our place. This is the ironic twist. Isaiah 53 says, it was not for his sin. It was not for his crimes. Isaiah tells us he bore our grief. He carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. And he was crushed, not for his iniquities, but for your iniquity and my iniquity. The irony is this, that through his death, we can have life and life eternal. The death of death by the death of Christ. The irony is, this cross of Jesus Christ rescues you, and it rescues me, and all who will put their faith and trust in this King and in this Savior. You, you can't make up this gospel. This is a gospel that no human being would ever make up. A gospel who says, you're guilty, you deserve to die, so I will take the innocent, spotless Lamb of God, God incarnate in the flesh, and he will step into your place. What do I do? How much works? How much religion? None. It's finished. His heart was broken. Mine was mended. He became sin. Now I am clean. The cross he carried bore my burden. The nails that held him set me free. His scars of suffering brought me healing. He spilt his blood to fill my soul. His crown of thorns made me royalty. His sorrow gave me joy untold. He was despised and rejected, stripped of his garments and oppressed. I am loved and accepted and wear a robe of righteousness. His life for mine, his life for mine, how could it ever be that he would die, God's son would die, to save a wretch like me? What love divine. He gave his life for mine. It's the irony of all of it. And may this morning, may we see what's really happening in this text. That God's plan has come to fulfillment and fruition from Genesis 3. That there's coming one who would crush the head of the serpent. He would take a wound on his heel, but he'd crush his head. And he offers salvation this morning to all who will repent and believe. And so, what appears on the surface differs radically from what is actually the case. May we hear, consider the more that is meant. And this morning, may our hearts be stirred 
beyond this morning. Beyond this morning. To this afternoon and tomorrow and this week as we go back to the beauty of our Savior. I'll ask the men at this time to join me on the platform as we prepare for communion. Everything in the service points to this, this, the communion, the Lord's Supper, a time when we remember what Christ has done. It's important for the life of the believer that we pause, we think, we reflect, and we remember every aspect. These simple elements are so powerful, the bread and the cup, the body and the blood. And may we, in the next few moments, just stop, stop. Think about Matthew 27. Think about the ironic twist of all of this, that we who should be condemned are free, free forever. Amen. We're free. We invite all those who know Christ as their Savior and since the time of their conversion have been baptized to join us around the Lord's table. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. We thank you for this service. We thank you for our Savior. May the power of what Christ has done Resonate in our hearts and minds this morning. Lord, may it change us, profoundly change us. I thank you for all that we've said and done, what we've sang, what we've heard. And now, Lord, as we take the bread and the cup, may our minds just focus on the one who is worthy. In Jesus' name, amen. First Corinthians 11, Paul says, I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. The Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and he blessed it, he raised it. Pastor Dan, would you pray for the bread? I'm sorry. Yes, that's right? Okay. Do that. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I thank you for an invitation to a table that I don't deserve. Lord, I thank you that you have enabled us to be redeemed, forgiven, children of God because of what Christ accomplished on the cross for us. And Lord, when we consider our sin, how ugly it is, and not, not, just, not just justify ourselves, but look at the law of God and look at your holiness, and then look at our lives, we recognize how undeserving we are. Lord, that our sin was so wicked that it put Jesus on the cross where he was tortured and he suffered and died for it. And Lord, I, I thank you that the creator who spoke all things into existence then came to die for his creation. Mm-hmm. And Lord, I thank you that you loved us far beyond we des- what we deserve. And so God, as we take this bread, as we participate in the Lord's body, we're just grateful, Lord. We're thankful for the sacrifice that was made so that we could be free. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus said, take, eat this. This is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. Eat and remember. Paul continues and says, after the same manner also, he took the cup and he had supped. Brother Tom, would you pray for the cup this morning? Our Heavenly Father, it states in your word that the life is in the blood. Hmm. Our health, our strength, our endurance is distributed to the members of our body by the blood pulsing through our arteries and veins. Father, we acknowledge that our own blood has been contaminated by the pollution of this world Mm -hmm. and has been tainted by our own transgressions, disobedience, and sin. 
resulting in fatigue and weariness and eventually ending in death. Father, we want to thank you for your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has given us new life, a new birth, Mm -hmm. an abundant life, and an endurance to accomplish your holy purpose in our lives. Jesus, we acknowledge that your blood cleanses us from all our sins, and we are quietly and humbly rejoicing that we can participate in your blood symbolically at this table and receive the abundant and purposeful life this cup represents. We pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Jesus said, this cup is a New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. Drink and remember. For as oft as you eat this cup and drink this, eat this bread and drink this cup, you show the Lord's death until he comes. And ask the worship team to join me on the platform as we prepare to close our service. The Bible tells us that they went out from a, the, that night by singing a hymn, and we too will sing the power of the cross. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about what you've just heard or are interested in the ministry of Maple City, please visit our website at maplecitybaptistchurch.com.